right, welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. Uh, my name is Michael, I am your host, and I am coming to you from Northern Arizona forests. It is August, and we have had a spectacular monsoon season. That, uh, in these forests, is synonymous with mushroom hunting. Uh, the mushrooms are coming up like crazy right now and people are going crazy for them. Uh, my kids, my wife and I, we have been out hunting. We've collected uh, just a, a truckload of white king bleats. We have collected aspen bleats. We have collected some king bleats, uh, red kings. We have collected some Caesar mushrooms and we're just having a great time doing it. Um, we're a little burnt out. We've been eating mushrooms for just about every meal for the last few days. But we are drying and storing the rest for later use and they are delicious let me tell you um so if, if you've never been out mushroom hunting or, or if you do it every year this is the episode for you we have got the executive director of the arizona mushroom society on and he's going to give us a great overview of how to get into mushroom hunting when and where resources for identification and tips and also ideas for cooking, um, preparation, and storage. So we're going to cover the whole gauntlet here. I will say, uh, people, like I said, people are going crazy for mushrooms, it seems like. Uh, I've received several uh, direct requests for information on, on how to do this. People are people asking me to go out with them to teach them you know, what, what they can eat and what they can't. Well, I'm not an expert, so I have to politely decline. Um, but that's what prompted this episode. So I really hope it helps a lot of people. I think it will. We cover a lot of good information here. And uh, yeah, people are excited about this. So I, I think I think folks are going to really enjoy this. And I hope you enjoy this. So stick around. Um, listen to this. Yeah. But before we get going, just a few announcements. First one is uh, basically a placeholder or a save the date from our friends at Scottsdale Ducks Unlimited. Let's see. They are holding their banquet on December 10th. So mark your calendars for that and come back and listen to later episodes for more information. Um, they are also holding uh, the youth a youth mountain zone waterfowl hunt on October 1st in the Pine Top Sholo area. Uh, my buddy Colin, he's going to be on that hunt, and that fella knows how to find and shoot ducks. Um, he's helped me out in that arena several times. Not one you're going to miss, especially if you have a little one uh, that you'd like to get out and experience some fun stuff and some duck hunting and some good eating afterwards. Um, next up, we have from the Outdoor Discovery Academy. Um, let's see. First off, all of their August classes are full, but they have openings in September. This is for a hunting fundamentals class. This runs from 5 to 6.30, Tuesdays or Thursdays. It's a four-week session. It's open to all ages. Uh, they, they do have family discounts. And things that you're going to learn are safety rules, rifle marksmanship, archery, intro to fishing, setting up camp, and applying for hunt. And you can learn all about this at OutdoorDiscoveryAcademy.org. All right, and then finally, nominations are open for the Arizona Game and Fish 2022 Commission Awards. Let's see, these award, uh, these nominations, forgive me, can be submitted online. The deadline is August 24th, 2022. Uh, the purpose of these awards is to recognize Arizonans who have contributed significantly to the conservation of the state's wildlife, its outdoor heritage, and the mission of the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Nominations may include individuals, organizations, clubs, foundations, or government agencies, but Arizona Game and Fish Department employees are not eligible for these nominations. Now, I'm going to run through the categories, and I'm not going to give descriptions of all these for the sake of time, but I know for a fact that folks that listen to this podcast are passionate conservationists in a lot of cases, 
and they probably hang around with a lot of other passionate conservationists. So if, as I go through these categories, if that, that causes a, a name or a face to pop up in your mind, submit them uh, as a nomination. Here are the categories. Award of Excellence, Youth Conservationist of the Year, Media of the Year, Conservation Organization of the Year, Conservationist of the Year, Natural Resource Professional of the Year, Volunteer of the Year, Educator of the Year, Mentor of the Year, Advocate of the Year, Business Partner of the Year, and the Buck Appleby Hunter Education Instructor of the Year Award. So, like I said, if you know somebody that fits into one of those categories, do them a favor and send in a nomination. So with that, um, man, I really hope you enjoy this episode. I, I certainly enjoyed the talk I had uh, regarding mushroom hunting, and I hope it helps you. And I hope it inspires you to get out and enjoy your Arizona forest. And yeah, with that, we'll see you after the show. Thanks. All right. All right. I'm with Mike Dector here. And Mike, um, I'm just going to go ahead and put it right over to you. Tell us who you are. Tell us your relationship to the Arizona Mushroom Society. And tell us uh, how you got involved in all this, how you got interested in mushrooms. Great. Thanks, Michael. Uh, uh, my name is Mike Dector, and I work for the Coconino National Forest, actually. But my hobby for quite a while has been wild foods and wild mushrooms. And so I got involved with the Arizona Mushroom Society, which previous to that was the Arizona Mushroom Club. And uh, I was leading forays uh, for them uh, since they got started as the society. Did that for a few years, and then I became the president of that organization. I ran that for three years. And then according to our bylaws, um, I needed to move out, and so I became the executive director and have been doing that uh, for the last couple of years. Awesome. Well, it is extremely timely that we are sitting here chatting today because we are having a fantastic monsoon season. And I've been out collecting and foraging, and I, I've had a, had, a, had a great season already, and we just got started. Um, I, I collected a bunch of big king bolites, um, some Caesars, uh, some aspen bolites, uh, a couple of red bolites. So it's been wonderful already. I've been processing those at home. And, of course, like most people that are really excited about things, we like to post about it on social media. So when I did that, um, I've gotten a lot of private messages, requests from people that, that are very interested in this and they want to get out in the field, but they don't know what to do. They don't know where to start. Um, so that's why that's why I asked you here today to talk about that, to talk about how people can get started in this thing and you know what this thing is and why it's so interesting and addictive, because it certainly is. Um, so what I want to talk about first is how, how do folks get started in this? And, you know, we'll break this down into, you know, different, different categories, but, but let's start with the, the very basics. Uh, when do people do this? I mean, uh, when are mushrooms available, especially here in, in our state? Well, here in Arizona, the mushrooms generally follow the monsoon season. And so they really come or go whether or not we have enough rain from the monsoons or not. Mm -hmm. Our monsoon season officially starts in mid-June, but we really don't start getting rain until like the beginning of July if we're lucky. And it takes about two or three weeks of rains for those mycelium to grow and to really develop enough so that they can fruit. So in Arizona, our mushroom season, it really comes in at late July 
and lasts through August and then maybe at the beginning of the September, then it starts getting pretty cold at night. Mushrooms don't like cold weather, so mm -hmm. they start kind of dying off. And so if I could tell you, uh, you know, as briefly as possible when our monsoon season is in Arizona, I'd say August. Yeah. Well, you mentioned two things there that, that might throw people off. You mentioned fruit and mycelia. Can you go into a little bit about what you mean there? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, you know, a lot of folks, when they see someone coming down from a trail with a bag full of mushrooms, they might get concerned that they picked all these mushrooms and all these mushrooms that they found are not going to grow anymore. But in fact, a mushroom is more like an apple from an apple tree. Mm -hmm. It's not the organism itself. It's the fruiting part of that organism. The actual organism is under the ground where you can't see it, made up of small root-like threads called mycelium. And basically, you know, once that mushroom is picked, that fruiting body is gone, those mycelium will can fruit again, a lot of times, depending on the weather and habitat and situation. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of, of people going back to the same tree and collecting, collecting a group of oyster mushrooms year after year. Yeah, exactly. You got to get your oyster tree and then make sure to visit it at the right time. Right. And, you know, we, before we started here, we were talking and I had made the comment because it just boggles my mind, you know, that of the kingdoms of life, um, you know, Plantae is very obvious, um, Animalia is very obvious, but under the ground and, and throughout these root systems, there's this whole other kingdom of life just, just out of sight, but it's huge and it's diverse. And, you know, there's certain times a year we get we get glimpses of it. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I call it the cryptic kingdom because, you know, we really don't see much about it. And we really, you know, compared to the other kingdoms of life, don't know much about it. Fungi were in the plant kingdom until 1969 mm -hmm. and then until they were finally reclassified. And here in Arizona, we're kind of like the backwaters of the mushroom world. And we're actually finding there's so many species out there that have never been identified by science mm -hmm. that, um, you know, may look like something else, but actually have a unique DNA signature. And we're just learning about that stuff. We're just starting to scratch the surface yeah. in places like Arizona, where, you know, fungi are kind of limited and just, you know, haven't been kind of the, the main you know, subject of people's outdoor adventures. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, like I said, it boggles the mind. So you, you mentioned monsoon, but what about spring? Where I grew up in the Ozarks, that's when we hunted mushrooms. We went out every spring chasing morels. Do we get any of that opportunity here? We do get morel mushrooms uh, in burn areas, and we also get natural morels in some riparian areas. But our springs here are pretty temperamental, mm -hmm. um, and also those mushrooms, those spring mushrooms, they really depend on snowpack because of uh, recent climate change. We've had decreasing amounts of snowpack over the years, and that right. has a huge impact on our ability of mushrooms to grow in the mountains. And then, you know, that affects the amount of water in the streams below. And so that really affects whether or not those mushrooms are going to fruit in the spring. Yeah. We have had some monster years where there's been some areas of burn rails where whole hillsides are filled with burn rails. And it's, wow. it's fun to get that here in Arizona, but it's a pretty rare thing. And morel fruiting is super variable just based on, you yeah. know, snowfall and, and weather in the spring. Right, right. Well, um, you know, I guess one more reason to be concerned about climate change, uh, lack of morels. But um, over in California, they're finding them right now. Um, is that a, is that a fluke? Um, is that a, a different species or variant? Uh, what, what's the difference there? In really high elevation areas in the Rocky Mountains, we get burn morels up until August, sometimes mm -hmm. even September. Okay. And we can get like a succession of different species of burn morels in you know those really high elevation areas. I've never actually seen. Um, a summer burn morel here. I've never found one. I've seen one or two other people find them here in Arizona. I just saw yesterday someone was finding them in the higher elevations of New Mexico. But it's a pretty normal thing in the higher elevations of Colorado where they have a lot of high elevation alpine areas, you know, and burns. Right. We just don't have enough of that high elevation alpine areas, you know, to get morels in mm -hmm. the summertime. 
Yeah, for for those of of you out there that don't don't know what we're referring to with the morel mushroom, um, you know it's it's a brainy looking capped mushroom. I don't. I'm sure there's a good way in in your world that you're much more intertwined in than I am to describe this. But um, in my opinion, they are one of the most delicious mushrooms. And you know, fried morel and uh, fried crappie together um, with maybe some wild asparagus just just reeks of springtime and everything that comes with it yeah we get a lot of people who are interested in morels and um i think every spring i get a few dozen emails from midwest transplants who are out here who who may have caught wind or just be curious if morels grow out here and you know i'll tell them well you know burn morels are kind of hard to find and then we have riparian morels which are even more hard to find Uh I've, i've heard that they exist though yeah they exist uh but you know it's one of those things where you could spend uh you know days and days and and you might find a couple you know because they never really grow in in big amounts and then the other thing about them is they really like sandy bottomed you know uh, areas next to the streams Mm -hmm. and so a lot of times when people find them they are just covered in sand and so (laughs) it's nothing like the midwest morels that they find there but at least we got them yeah all right so all right so we got the seasons down spring eh, not really uh, monsoon season, that's time to be out yep. um, and, and give it a little time, let the ground get wet. Exactly. Um, so what about regionality? I mean, if you live in, in Phoenix, I'm assuming, you know, running out to your, your closest plot of national forest or BLM might not be the best bet. Yeah, you want to hit high elevation areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to probably, if you're looking for mushrooms, you know, with some diversity, you want to check out ponderosa pine forest or higher elevation forests, including mixed conifer or spruce fir forest. You know, the spruce fir and mixed conifer, there are more tree species in those yeah. forest types. So you're going to see more fungi species in those forest types. There's more diversity. And then also those areas get more water. That's why they have, you know, more tree species. And so they tend to get more fungi too. But once you hit a pretty good saturation point, these ponderosa pine forests can go off and they have some of the biggest macro fungi that are edible and easy mm-hmm. to identify and so it's a really great place to mushroom hunt and cut your teeth on mushroom hunting if you're interested in that awesome well you mentioned macro fungi let's let's talk about some of the more common easily identified species um that, that people pursue out here all right so we i always tell people that uh you know flagstaff arizona or northern arizona is the lobster capital of the uh-huh. world because we get so many lobster mushrooms and lobster mushrooms are a great starting mushroom because they're kind of this biohazard orange color um so you can you know see them really easily mm-hmm. and just that bright color helps you identify them from the large majority of other mushrooms that are growing on the ground and then they're one of the few mushrooms that actually lacks any gills whatsoever and if you cut them open they're just solid white um flesh or mm-hmm. tissue inside and so those characteristics make them really easy to identify the other really cool thing about lobster mushrooms is they have a neat story they're actually a type of mushroom called Rusla brevipes, which is then parasitized by another ascomycete fungi and turned into the lobster mushroom. Now, the Rusula brevipes is uh, kind of like a, a white mushroom with a small little stem that mostly grows under the pine needles. Mm-hmm. And so most of the time it's there, you just don't see it because it never really pops its head out. Um, it's not very good to eat, although it is technically edible. However, once it gets parasitized, it kind of densifies a little bit and that outside bright yellow crust kind of forms all around it and so it becomes very easy to identify it usually pops up a little bit under the um or over the pine needle so you can see a little bit of it and mm-hmm. dig it out and then you know it's, it's it's a wonderful edible nice and firm it's not not everyone loves it but i think you'll find that most people really enjoy the lobster mushroom yeah, yeah. and even more than that it's one of the most easy to um 
to cook with and then to preserve in the long run. It's one of the few mushrooms you could just clean, throw in the freezer, and it'll be good when you take it out. Most right. mushrooms will turn to mush, so that's a nice little treat as well. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll throw in my two cents on this if you don't mind. Last year at our backcountry hunters and anglers foray, um, my kids and I we probably collected thirty pounds of lobster mushrooms. Um, and just had a blast. And we took those home and processed all of them, which was a nightmare. Yeah, it's a lot and of work. the big mistake I've made, and I, I continue making it when I get excited um, and get a little greedy, is I just start picking and throwing them in the bag. Instead of taking my time, picking choice specimens, and cleaning them off before I put them in the bag. So, so I end up with this bag of like half dirt, half mushrooms, and it just makes the processing so much more difficult than it has to be. Yeah, cleaning mushrooms could be quite a tall task. I uh -huh. mean, there's you know, a lot of dirt in the little crevices, and lobster mushrooms especially seem to be adept at you know really mm -hmm. uh, trapping dirt in there. And so, yeah, that's something you want to think about when you're out there. I think a lot of us get really excited when we see these you know, just delicious looking edible mushrooms growing all over the place. But then when you get home and you're exhausted from hiking all day, cleaning them is the last thing you want to do. Right. And so you're not the first person I, I heard <laughs> that from. And, you know, that comes with, you know, just uh, experience, experience and wisdom. Yeah. And, yep. you know, uh, with the Arizona Mushroom Society, we, we try to help people figure out how to best clean these mushrooms, then, you know, temper their desire to collect as many as possible, which I think we've all had before yep. when we, you know, go out there and it just happens to be just a bonanza of wild right. mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So lobsters, I would agree. You know, I, I've um, been uh, up here, you know, in, in the mountains now, Arizona mountains for, oh, just since mid last winter. But just talking to folks and locals, lobsters are what people are talking about. Yeah. Right? That's what people are looking for. They're just to. one of the great beginner mushrooms here. Mm -hmm. um, another one that I would, you know, that uh, a lot of people are starting to see right now and pick is the Caesar's Amanita. Have you ever uh -huh. seen that one or yeah, eaten that I, one? I ate some the other night. Yeah. So that's in the Amanita group and uh -huh. Amanita has some of our most poisonous and toxic yep. mushrooms. So, you know, a lot of times we tell people like, you know, this is a, a medium or intermediate mushroom, intermediate or, inter or advanced because, uh, you know, we want to make sure that people can decipher them from other types of Amanita. Right. But the thing about the Caesar's Amanita is um, it has some key characteristics that really help you tell it apart from others mm -hmm. and you could find massive amounts here in north of northern arizona fruiting all at once and some of those key characteristics are it has this uh, vulva or this fleshy cup that's kind of at the bottom mm -hmm. of the base of the mushroom which on the caesar's amanita is really thick and rubbery and you don't really see that with other amanitas you don't see just this giant rubbery vulva on the bottom and then the other key characteristic is they have these uh, buttery yellow gills and a partial veil around the stem. Mm -hmm. And so if you have those characteristics together, the buttery yellow gills, the rubbery vulva, then you know that's a Caesar's Amanita and it's an edible Amanita that right. you can eat. Nice. And uh, the nice thing about those is you can find them in the egg phase when they're little babies and just starting to grow. Yeah. And I like to take those and stuff them with like hot Italian sausage or something and bake uh. them. But you can also eat them when they're fully mature and have opened up and are like, you know, almost mini umbrella sized. Yep. And so they're just a versatile mushroom. I will say they kind of have a taste a little bit like seafood, so they're not for everybody. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you do enjoy them, then there's a good bounty here in northern Arizona with, you know, any average monsoon or better. Yeah. Um, I, I had heard that some folks eat those raw, put them on salads and such. Yeah. So we never recommend eating wild mm -hmm. mushrooms raw um, because there's other things other than the fungi itself, like bacteria and stuff like that. But there are some wild mushrooms that are edible raw, and the Caesar's Amanita is one of them. And a very popular recipe uh, that I've seen around and tried myself is a Caesar's Amanita ceviche, which is Ooh. actually quite nice, you know? That Sound nice. Yeah, really, um, I think, uh, takes to advantage the kind of fishy taste of the Caesar's Amanita. Yeah, yeah. 
Nice. All right, what else we got? All right, so another one and one of my favorites is the King Belites, and mm-hmm. we have two types here in Northern Arizona. We have the White King Belite or Belitus barousii, and that grows mostly in the Ponderosa pine habitats. And then we have the Red King Belite or the Belitus rubriceps, and that grows in the higher elevations, primarily in spruce fir habitat types. It's mostly mm-hmm. associated with spruce trees. And those are what you'd call the penny bun or the sep or the porcini mushroom. And, uh, you know, they have these just First of all, they could just be giant mushrooms. Like, I mean, you could have, you know, one specimen that weighs like, you know, more than a couple pounds sometimes. And so just that alone makes them mm-hmm. quite impressive. Yep. And then, you know, they have other key characteristics such as they have like a spongy um, bottom underneath the cap instead of gills. We call those pores. And then they also have this pattern called reticulation on the stem near the cap, which kind of looks like a, the pattern on a giraffe's neck. Um, kind of laid as a thin veil over mm-hmm. the stem. And so if you if you can see both of those on a mushroom, then you have um, a porcini or a king belete. And those are considered choice mushrooms. Mm-hmm. I actually pr- prefer to dry those and use the powder in, in most of my recipes. The only time I like to eat them fresh is if, if they're nice, firm buttons. Yep. Otherwise, I, f- I find that the... Uh, the meat itself is kind of spongy a little bit yeah, and not the best yeah. texture, but they're highly sought after and pretty yummy. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I discovered that. Um, this is the first time I, I collected and consumed them just these last two days. Um, and yeah, you know, I, 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 it's amazing how much you can learn in one outing and one processing session and one cooking session. You know, so oh, yeah. much comes together. Well, and that's why I really love to go out and collect wild mushrooms because, you know, you're using all your senses and you're actually, you know, getting the smells and the feel of the texture of the mushroom. And, you know, you're really getting to learn the habitat type. And so, you know, you're learning by doing Mm -hmm. in each of those situations and by doing it, you know, year after year, just kind of cementing that knowledge, like really into your brain from from having those experiences. And so it's always good to, um, you know, read a a book about mushrooms or read articles or listen to this podcast, but the best way to learn for sure is to go out. Yep. Yep. I I would agree with that. I, uh, I take it very seriously. I mean, we haven't talked about, you know, dangers associated with this. Um, but uh, I take it very seriously, especially when I'm feeding this stuff to my children. Um, and they love to mushroom hunt. They love to get out with me and, and go. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, I, I take it seriously. Um, they, they get up every morning. They walk around the yard to see if there's anything new. <laughs> they keep bringing up Slippery Jacks, which we did eat a few of those this mm-hmm. year, and they were okay. Yeah. But processing was a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do. They're a little slimy. Oh, yeah. So after eating a few, I was like, yeah, that, that's good. You know, we got a better stuff popping up now. Let's yeah, focus on that. But they exactly. keep bringing them in every morning. <laughs> The curse of slippery jacks. Yeah. Well, you covered all the common ones that I'm familiar with and I'm out there looking for, but are there any others you did? Yeah. I mean, there's quite a few others. In fact, there's hundreds of species here in Arizona and you'd, you know, you might be surprised about all the stuff you hear about mushrooms to find that, you know, only very few of them are actually mm-hmm. deadly poisonous. Well, that was a question I was going to have personally. And it's something that I've been wondering about, you know, if we had a pie chart, um, of like edible mushrooms versus mushrooms that'll give you a tummy ache versus mushrooms that could straight up kill you. What would that pie chart look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I think like you'd probably be dealing with mushrooms that'll straight up kill you probably between, and this is totally unscientific. I haven't, you know, actually looked into this, but probably like between 10 and 20%, something that'll give you a, that's significant though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You need to know like what's out there before, uh, basically what you have before you eat it. And so just to be clear, you shouldn't be going out, 
you know, getting any mushroom being like, the odds are I'll be fine. No, right. you should know what that is before you eat it. Um, but yeah, I mean, compared to all what's out there, there's only a few that are choice edible. There's only a few that are deadly poisonous. There's, and then everything else is somewhat in the middle. You mm -hmm. know, it's too small, too chewy. It uh, gives you stomach upset, um, just not tasty at all. Right. You know, all those kinds of uh, elements involved. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to learn though. And I will say, you know, in my, um, 15 years of, of doing mushroom hunting here in the Southwest, I've probably eaten over 150 different species that I've found. So there's quite a lot out of there oh, wow. uh, that are edible. That, that's awesome. Um, all right. So when it does come to positively identifying a species to consume, what, what are your recommendations? What, what are good resources, maybe good books? Well, if you can get an opportunity to go out with a local mycological group, then I'd highly recommend that. And so there's the Arizona Mushroom Society here mm -hmm. in Arizona. Um, if you're in other states, then I'd check up to see what your local, you know, mycological society is. And then if you can try to get in one of their events, especially this time of year, there's so much interest. And you kind of alluded to this before, but um, our events fill up really, really fast. You know, while the monsoons are on, while people are actively seeing these mushrooms all over the place and seeing them on their Facebook feed or whatever, um, you know, suddenly they're very interested. And so we, there's just a deluge of interest this time of year. Boy, there sure is. Yeah. And so if you can't get on one of those, I would say, um, you know, get some uh, mushroom uh, books. There's mm -hmm. some really good mushroom identification books. There's a few by David Aurora. There's some for, there's one called Mushrooms of the Rocky Mountain Region by uh, Vera Stuckey Evanson, which is a really good book. There's also, um, and I hate to recommend Facebook, but that happens to be a really good media for sharing mushroom pictures and mm -hmm. information. Yeah, and the, the Arizona Mushroom Forum is a yeah, really good one. I've been exactly. Impressed. So a lot of people will post their pictures on the Arizona Mushroom Forum and say, can someone help me? And, and here's what I would recommend. If you get mushroom identification from some random person on the internet, that's a good start, not a good end. So, mm -hmm. you know, you take that information, then you check for yourself, whether it's online at a website like Mushroom Expert or in one of your mushroom identification books, you want to check all the characteristics of that mushroom and then line them up to what you have. And that's that verification step. So you're a hundred percent sure of your species. Gotcha. Yeah, I see. Awesome. Well, let's see. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, there's there's not a whole lot involved um, as far as gear goes in, in mushroom hunting, but I like gear. I'll admit it. I'm a bit of a gearhead, and I think for let's see, it was last last birthday or last Christmas, I got my wife a, a couple a couple guides. I got her a really really nice custom made mushroom bag off of Etsy, nice. and I got her the I don't know how to say Opinel Opinel. Oh yeah, uh -huh. the, the mushroom knife, knife with yep. the brush. Um, and she has not had the opportunity to get out this year, so I took her stuff. <laughs> yeah, you got to, you know. I got to tell you, I love that knife. Oh, yeah, um, it's fun. It's got this nice little brush on the end. Yeah. So you can brush dirt at all those little cracks and nice curved blade for cutting off stems. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely love a good mushroom knife myself. Um, if you don't want to spring for a knife with a brush at the end, just having like a paintbrush cut mm -hmm. off short and angle so the bristles are a little more stiff. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really helpful for brushing that's off dirt. Idea. Yeah. And so, you know, just, I think a, a key, um, thing that you want to know if you're collecting mushrooms is if you're collecting mushrooms for identification purposes, you want to dig out the entire mushroom mm -hmm. from the base. So you might want to bring, bring like a small trowel or something that you could actually dig the mushroom up because we want to look for characteristics like that vulva we talked about yep. with the Caesar's amanita. Yep. And to find that we'll have to dig it out of the ground. If you're just collecting mushrooms to eat, not necessarily to identify, then you want to probably cut that mushroom off at the ground surface. So you don't get all the dirt from that mushroom mm -hmm. into your bag or your basket that you're carrying. 
And so, uh, you know, that's what I'll usually do. So for example, if I'm collecting Caesar's Amanitas and, you know, I'm not looking to identify them, I'll cut them all off at the ground surface and then throw them in my basket. And then I have a clean mushroom with maybe a little forced debris, but no dirt involved. And that makes it a lot easier in the end. Right. Right. Now, is there, because I've heard contradicting reports on this, you know, I understand the fact that the actual organism is, is underground, um, that rhizomas or mycelia stage. Um, and when you pick that mushroom, it's like picking an apple off a tree. But is there any effect whenever you pull up the, the rooted end, so to speak? Yeah, so there's a, kind of this, you know, repeated debate of uh, cut or pick, you know, which one's better for the mushroom. And the truth is it doesn't really matter so much. It's, it's not going to affect the mycelium either way. Probably okay. what makes more of a difference is you know, how you treat that site. If you drive in there with your car and drive all over the place and the places the mushrooms would grow, then, sure. you know, that's going to have a much bigger effect than pitting or uh, cutting or picking, gotcha. and, you know, just things of like leaving trash and, and stuff like that, you know, that's going to have a bigger effect on the environment than whether or not you cut or pick. So, uh, you know, the good thing is you don't have to worry about how you get those mushrooms out of the ground. As long as you kind of leave no trace, you'll be mm -hmm. doing good by the land. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Let's see. So maybe you can clear up one uh, another question I have had because I've heard heard things both ways and you know this is not this is not a world that I've I've really researched and dug into so I kind of got to go off what I hear and what you hear is not always correct but um, a lot of folks carry mushrooms in mesh bags to allow spores to drop onto the ground is that really having any kind of effect is that is that how mushrooms reproduce you know I don't think we know for sure if um, if you have a a mesh bag or a mesh basket or, you know, more of a solid canvas bag, if it makes any difference at all. Mm -hmm. uh, we do know that, you know, uh, mushroom picking in areas year after year at fairly moderate to high intensity uh, doesn't seem to have an effect on mushrooms growing back in that area at the same or similar abundance. And so a lot of that may be be because, you know, when you're picking a mushroom, you're spreading around those spores. What um, not even mattering what type of bag you have because, you know, as you pick it up and, you know, move it over to your bag, those spores are just kind of falling out all over the place, getting into the wind currents and that kind of stuff. And so I'd say that's probably uh, has a minor effect, but not a huge effect that, you know, any evidence points to. Okay. Um, so other than, you know, a good pair of uh, walking shoes, boots, a map, bottle of water, a field guide, you know, a bag to carry things in, is there anything else you need or you'd recommend? You know, that's one of the wonderful things about mushroom hunting is you don't really need too much special gear. Uh, mm -hmm. More and more, I'm recommending to people um, about using the iNaturalist app because mm -hmm. it's a good way to identify mushrooms, not necessarily instantaneously, but over the long term as different experts on that app can give their input. But also it contributes to data as to what mushrooms are growing where under what conditions. So that just helps people who are in the mushroom world understand about what's out there and yeah. what's going on. Um, another uh, thing that I would recommend is that, you know, people just make sure that they have a good map and a way not to lose themselves in the woods. Because I think the number one issue with mushroom hunters is they're so focused on finding good mushrooms and looking at the ground and not paying attention to where they're going that sometimes they get lost. And so just making sure that you drop a GPS pin where your vehicle is if you're not at a popular trailhead and can get back to your vehicle, um, you know, that's key. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, I, I want to talk some about um, preparation for storage, some cooking ideas, some recipes, things like that. Uh, but before we do that, let's circle back one more time to the safety element, because 
um, you know, I see a lot, and, and you already mentioned this. I just want to reiterate it a bit. Um, someone will take a, a picture, you know, from standing up adult height of a mushroom on the ground with a white top, put it on a forum and say, what is this? And then sure enough, somebody will pop up and say, oh, well, that's a King Belit. Um, but it very well might not be, you know, so, so don't, don't take that as an absolute, don't run off and eat that mushroom, feed it to your family. Um, you need exactly. to be sure on these things and you need to utilize lots of different sources of information, whether that be experts online, forums can be a great place if, if they're, if they're taken, how do you say that? Um, <laughs> if, if they're used with other evidence, you yeah. know, and so yeah. I'd, I'd say, you know, online is a great tool. And in fact, in internetization of mushroom hunting has really changed the game. But I say use the online ID as your starting place uh -huh. and not your ending place. And then, you know, you need to do that verification yourself. And so, you know, for, for me, when I started mushroom hunting, there weren't, you know, experts on the internet you can get in touch with by posting stuff on iNaturalist or Facebook. Um, but now you can. The issue is you don't know if that person talking to you on Facebook is Joe Schmo or actually someone who knows what they're talking right. about. And so you just have to take that into consideration and then, you know, verify anything you hear online. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's that's reasonable. That's smart. Well, can I can I give you a scenario? Um, and that Please. would be you've you've been out in the field, um, you've collected um, a, a few king bolites, um, you've collected a few lobster mushrooms, you get home, what are you going to do with them? Uh, what are you going to, I mean, I, are you going to eat some fresh and then store some for later? And if so, what are you going to make and how are you going to do that? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a great question in every successful mushroom hunter's quandary, right? Uh, so, you know, what I will always do as soon as I get my mushrooms home, I'll take them out of like whatever cooler or bag I have them in and um, I'll put them in uh, basically paper bags and put them in my fridge. Or what I often do is I use those like, you know, strawberry fruit clamshells that you get at the grocery store. I'll put a couple uh, paper towels in them and then I'll put the mushrooms in there. Having a paper bag or paper towels is helpful because mushrooms are mostly water mm -hmm. and so you don't want them to get slimy and so those kind of absorb any extra liquid that's in there and then keeping them cool you know is another factor just like any other type of food you know to preserve it for a little longer. And then you know um, I guess I go against one of the the biggest no-nos of mushroom um, cleaning and eating which is I usually clean them under running water uh, for things like lobsters, I'll soak them for 10 minutes first to loosen up that dirt. I'll scrub them clean with a little brush that I might have at the kitchen. And then once they're kind of wet and cleaned, I'll either try to slice them and cook them immediately or slice them and dry them immediately. You don't want them sitting there wet for a long time. So I always uh, wash them right before I'm going to do something with them. Okay. Um, and so if they go into the pan, I'm going to, you know, cook them until they're done right then or cook them and freeze them. And then if they go into my dryer, I'm going to dehydrate them till they're cracker dry yep. and then put them away for long-term storage. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've found, well, with different species, different storage techniques tend to work. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that the 30 pounds of, of lobsters I brought home and, you know, we did utilize all of that throughout the year. You know, Great. I ate my last bag right before uh, monsoons kicked in here. Nice time. But, um, they have a very dense texture, mm -hmm. um, so they're great in soups and in, in chili. I like to put them in chili because um, they just they really hold their structure well and they have a really nice bite to them. Um, I, of course, I mix them in with eggs and everything like that too. Sure. But um, how I did those and worked out really well. But there was one part I didn't like. Um, since I had so many, you know, dry sautéing them or, or drying them wasn't really practical. 
So I simmered them, um, and then I poured off that water. But when I poured off that water, it was this rich, beautiful red mm -hmm. stock that I should have probably kept. Um, so I felt like I was throwing away all this flavor. But as it turns out, they were wonderful anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know how else I would go about a mass amount like that and, and get it done. But um, then I just took took those those simmered mushrooms and I packaged them in usable size, you know, vacuum bags and, and it turned nice. out really well. But yeah, I do quite a lot of that too. The one thing to know about cooking mushrooms is it's more like cooking meat than like cooking a vegetable. They can take a lot of heat. You can cook them for quite a long time mm -hmm. and they're not going to burn or get, you know, limp. The one thitin that's unique about mushrooms is, you know, they have chitin instead of, um, kind of the, the, uh, stuff that the, the plants are, uh, have cell walls built out mm -hmm. of. And so when you put them under high heat and cook them for a while, they don't get loose and mushy like uh, vegetables do, for example, like an asparagus would. Instead, they get more chewy over time. And so by boiling mushrooms, which you see in a lot of Eastern European countries and stuff yeah. like that, you know, it doesn't just turn into mush. They more turn into like chewy, like you'd expect with meat rather than mm -hmm. what you get with a vegetable. Interesting. Well, this, uh, this last batch of of white king bolites I brought home. And again, I, I had several. Um, in this case, I dried them and I double batched it. I did it in a really low oven um, and I did it in a, a dehydrator and they both turned out equally well. Nice. But like you said, a cracker dry, you know, yeah. there's nothing in there. Yeah, you won't forget that if you ever have, uh, you know, a nice batch of lobsters or king bolites that you put up after dehydrating mm -hmm. and then you come back a month later and they're all rotten. You know, no yeah. one likes that. And so you got to make sure they're cracker dry. You might want to throw in some of those silicone drying packets in yeah, there with them just idea. to make sure that they stay fresh over the long term. In Arizona, we don't really have that problem because it's pretty dry most mm -hmm. of the time. But if you live in more humid climates, then that's a good practice. Okay. Um, and I have a personal question. Um, now I've got all of these dried uh, bolites. And I did notice one thing that, and I learned, um, that I, when I was cooking them fresh and I, I ate mushrooms until I couldn't take it any more <laughs> mushrooms. And then I started processing them for storage. But, um, the big ones, uh, with the, 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 like, not gills in this case and for, forgive my, my lack of education here, but yeah, the thick layer of pores that were really well developed and really spongy, they didn't cook well at all. They turned into a very unappetizing mush. Mm -hmm. Um, so then I had heard um, to take those off before you cook them. And those are best dried and to use as porcini powder. Mm -hmm. um, I've never used that. What are some good applications for that powder? Oh, man, porcini powder. I have it right next to my kitchen with the salt and pepper, and I put it in so many things. Really? I put it on eggs. I put it in soups. I put it in stews. I put it in chili. It just yeah. adds like it's kind of like adding salt, but instead of the salty flavor, it's just like almost like pure umami flavor that just, really? you know, underlines whatever you're cooking. And so I, I like it for that way. One of my favorite applications of it is instead of using flour to flour like a uh -huh. steak or, you know, like a, a fish oh, or like, a piece of chicken, use the wow. dried mushroom powder for that. And oh man, wow. that is a bunch of, you know, delicious flavor that you get uh, huh. with that steak or well, chicken that, or fish. Well, that's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, all right. So I can take like a portion of my, my dried bolites, throw them in a coffee grinder, maybe grind them up, put them in a shaker on the counter and that's all there's to it. Yeah. You can just use that powder straight. Some people combine it with salt and they use like porcini salt and they'll like, you know, sprinkle it on top of soups, stews, meats, whatever. And so you can do it either way. Wow. Well, I'm really excited to, uh, to try that. that yeah. Amazing. And, and I will say the large, I love mushrooms fresh, but mm -hmm. the bolites is just the one maybe exception where I prefer them dried and powdered the most because, you know, then the, the texture is not an issue at all uh -huh. and you can store it that way for, you know, quite a long time years. And so I use yeah. them that way mostly. 
Man, I, I will tell you, I have found, um, at least in, in this very limited um, uh, sample size of me doing this once, um, I found the Red Kings to be a little bit, at least a richer, more mushroomy flavor than the whites, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's what other people have, I've heard from to say. I think they think that the the whites, the Belitis browsii, are a little sweeter and a little mm-hmm. maybe less umami than the reds, the Belitis rubriceps. Um, yeah, and that's just, you know, they're different species and they associate with different trees. And so, you know, you, you can expect a slightly different taste. I will say that they're both delicious, though, for those of you out there who want to try them. And if you find either or, you're in for a treat. Yeah, yeah, I was very pleased with, with both. Um, well, that, that's awesome. Uh, so after you after you dry these, like I said, I mentioned I uh, I, I simmered my, my lobsters um, and stored them wet in vacuum sealed bags, and, and it worked well for me all year long. We enjoyed those, and they all, they came out great. Um, but for the porcinis, I uh, I'm drying them and break them up into sizable chunks and just storing them in, in quart jars. Is that recommended? Yeah, I use uh, basically like ball jars, you know, mm-hmm. just mason jars, and yep. uh, if I run out of those, I'll use like a you know, any kind of plastic container that I've cleaned out, I kind of have a container problem <laughs> because I, right. I store so many mushrooms. I always need like containers to store them and stuff. Oh, so I, I get it. Yeah. Through hunting, I'll make bone stock. And oh yeah. I'm an elk. I can get a lot of bone stock. Oh, yeah. I do so that too. And I, I make mushroom stock. In fact, if you pick out, there's a lot of mushrooms that, you know, are not choice edibles mm-hmm. and they may be slimy or they may have like a rough or uh, I mean, a, like a chewy texture that you could make stock out of, mm-hmm. you know, the same way you'd make chicken stock or anything. And so you can make big batches of that. And I have a pressure canner and I'll pressure can that and I'll make a bunch of mushroom stock each year. Yeah. Um, would that, would you recommend that with the slippery jacks? And I should say yeah. slippery jacks are, are a bully and they're, they're right now they're everywhere um, yeah. in the area that I live. Yeah. Slippery jacks of the Swillis genus. And there's a few different kinds we have here, but all are edible. And they're probably one of the most numerous mushrooms we have here out mm-hmm. in uh, Northern Arizona and other parts of Arizona possibly too. And so, um, the problem with them, is really hard to clean. And then when you cook them, they could be really slimy, but if you just use them for stock and cook them a, a really long time, it'll break down any texture associated with that mm-hmm. you know and it'll make great stock nice nice that sounds great yeah well, those are some good tips thank you yeah thank you for thank, that yeah thanks you know, for, for me personally because I'm, I'm very excited about this stuff right now um all right uh i would like to hear all about the mushroom society the arizona mushroom society um you maybe even a little bit of history if you got that and you what you do you know uh, what what how folks would get involved um you know things like that Yeah, so the Arizona Mushroom Society was formed um, a few years ago, and it came from what was the Arizona Mushroom Club Mm -hmm. uh, led by Dr. Chester Leathers, and he ran that for many years. It was just kind of like a a small club that you entered into over the mail, and then they'd just call people before forays and say, hey, we're meeting up at this time and location. See you there. And, And, you know, people would try to find them and they'd go out and find mushrooms. But, you know, times have changed. And so um, a little while back, Chris May, uh, who's uh, another Arizona Mushroom Society member, uh, basically turned it into a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And so since then, we're, we've been running the Arizona Mushroom Society and we're mostly an event based organization. So we do, um, of course, wild mushroom forays. I think that's what most people um, are interested in. However, we have a number of other events too that are mostly educational in nature from DIY mushroom cultivation to mushroom presentations and lectures by different people of different expertise in the mushroom world. And so there's really, it's just a great way to learn more about mushrooms and especially your Arizona and Southwestern mushrooms. We're an all volunteer based organization and, uh, you know, our membership 
would really um, balloons extreme during the mushroom season when people see them out all the time. And so, uh, you know, this time of year, if you're seeing mushrooms and you think, oh, it'd be great to go on a mushroom foray, it might be hard to find a spot. But uh, so I'd recommend folks, if this is an interest of yours, to get involved, you know, one of the less busy times of year and see what events are out there. And I think you'll find that there's lots of opportunities to get involved. Yeah, I'll I'll echo that. Um, We're having our Arizona Backcountry Hunters and Anglers uh, for a next weekend. Um, We opened up registration for that, expecting 20 or so people. Um, We quickly got over 70 and had to shut it down. Yeah, and that's my experience too. Most of our events fill up in tens of minutes, you know, like 10, 15, 20 minutes. and then, you know, our big event, our annual foray, where we have hundreds of people out throughout the weekend, uh, this is the first year that's ever filled up, and that's, you know, over 300 people. And so it's very popular right now. I think mushrooms are getting even more popular as people find the magic of mushrooms, whether it's eating mushrooms mm-hmm. or learning about them and how unique and interesting they are. It just seems to be um, a little bit of the cultural zeitgeist right now. Yeah, yeah, it, it really, people seem to gravitate towards it and yeah. really be attracted to it. It's interesting. Um, I'll say this. I was out foraging with uh, a mutual friend of ours, Travis, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he was talking about uh, uh, the, the Mushroom Society and and uh, mentioned that I, I should join up. And, and my immediate response was, you know, I want to support all of these conservation organizations just because they do good work. Um, I want to be part of the Pointing Dog Club because I have a dog that really needs attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, I want to be part of the Mushroom uh, Society. Um, and I, I'm like, man, I just can't do it all. You know, I'm sure. not made of money. But he's like, yeah, but that other stuff you can figure out on your own. This is something that you really need help with. And he's right, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I think people are very thirsty for knowledge. And we have some extremely knowledgeable people, in fact, uh, you know, some of the folks who are doing the most aer- you know, research on Arizona mushrooms right now are volunteers who work with us in the Arizona Mushroom Society, people like Terry Clements, who spends a ton of time DNA sequencing and um, figuring out these different species oh, wow. that we're seeing. And so, you know, it, we're very lucky that we have these folks who are have this interest, common interest, and are willing to take, you know, a lot of their personal time and work towards these goals of figuring out what we have here and so we can, you know, maintain them yeah. and conserve them into the future. And I think that's one of the main purposes of the Arizona Mushroom Society. I mean, we definitely want education to be a part of that. Part of that's also learning what's out there so that we can share that information with our publics. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned DNA. Um, I probably, you know, it, it's been the herpetofauna, reptiles, amphibians world that I've followed taxonomy the, the closest. And, and I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of what's going on there. Um does 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 do fungi do they parallel on, on the genetic level with animals and is there a lot of sequencing going on to figure out what these different species are yeah our access to dna sequencing has exploded in the last 10 years and so our ability to take a mushroom we find in the forest and then send it off to get it um, dna sequence and then to then compare that sequences against everything else that's out there Um, You know, we can do that now much easier than ever before. I remember when we kind of first started doing this, we might get lucky if we could find someone who could help us sequence a handful. But now every year we'll do like 50, 60, 70, 80 different specimens. And so, I mean, just the level of DNA analysis has really um, increased a lot. And that has resulted in constant name changes and redoes of a lot of the mushrooms. And, and bickering in, in the world? Uh, it's less bickering and more just like, oi vey, they took a, you know, a genus like Sathirella and they split it into 10 new genuses, you know? Right, and so right. now 
you know, going out on a foray where I used to say, oh, this is a Sathirella species. Now it could be one of 10 different things. And yep. it's just a little more complicated. And I must say, my ecologists, they do some really good work, but they are uh, not the best at naming things. Like a good example is they took this uh, species that used to be in the Clytosopy genus and they changed the genus to Infundibulisopy genus. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it makes it more difficult on, you know, amateurs like myself who are just trying to tell you what that mushroom is. Yeah, the, the turmoil in, in the taxonomic world and the lumping and the splitting, I, I think, you know, you can look at it as chaos or you can look at it as this beautiful and simple picture of how nuanced that stuff is and how species are not firmly defined things in, oh, yeah. in all cases. They're not and firmly evolution defined Evolution is at a all. flowing, continuing thing, you know, and it, it's hard to define things the way we people want to. Yeah, and it's true in our system, you know, of kind of placing each, spe each uh, you know, specimen in a neat species box and saying this is what that is, it doesn't always work. There's yeah. a lot of weird, confusing stuff out there we're yeah. finding in. You know, it's not as easy as that. And so... Um, you know, there's just a ton of uh, new information that we're trying to kind of figure out how to fit in these different boxes and then communicate that to other people. I mean, luckily, on most of our forays, there are so many species and so many mushrooms. Most people, they're happy with just knowing, like, whether or not something's edible, <laughs> you know. But, uh, yeah. but, but we do want to make sure people understand, like, oh, this is generally this kind of mushroom. And here are the characteristics of why we think that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you certainly don't have to go to that level. Uh, to enjoy these things and get out in the yeah. woods with your family, enjoy walking around, collecting some mushrooms and having a delicious meal when you get home. Sure. But that depth is, what, for me, at least one of the attractive things about it. And knowing, you know, that we're kind of on the leading edge of figuring out just what's out there, what exists and how it, you know, what its role is in the forest. Yeah. I mean, I get really excited about that, too. Yeah, I'm with you. I, yeah. I, I go deep in stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I really enjoy nerding out on things. All right, Mike, um, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for having um, me. I want to encourage folks to get out and enjoy these things this this season. You know, the more people out there enjoying our outdoors, the more people are going to care about them and, and be there to stick up for them when they need it. It's true. And in a year like this where we have good rains, there's really no excuse not to get outside at least a couple yeah. times, look around, maybe Nothing learn a mushroom or two. Because, you know, Arizona, we get variable rainfalls even during the monsoon season 2020, almost no rain whatsoever. And so get out there while the getting's good. Learn yeah. Something. Yeah. And I would encourage folks to grab a field guide, come back and listen to this again. And a lot of this stuff probably make more sense as you, yeah. as you got pictures in front <laughs> of you. True. But uh, all right, Mike, thanks. Uh, please, yeah. folks, and get out there, support the uh, the Mushroom Society. I think uh, there's a lot, a lot of benefit to doing that for you. All right, until next time. Until next time. Thank you so Take much. Care. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I had a great time talking with Mike, and uh, he is a wealth of knowledge, clearly passionate about mushrooms and and mushroom hunting and i think that comes through loud and clear that the man is a wealth of information and he's happy to share it with folks so with that get out um do it smartly do it safely enjoy your arizona woods enjoy finding these these incredibly delicious mushrooms and uh and get out there and join up with the arizona mushroom society and throw some support their way all right we'll see you again in two weeks in the meantime always reach out to me uh, if you like at podcast at az wildlife.org with any questions comments you have yeah anything i'd be happy to hear from you just chit chat be fine too all right take care we'll see you again in two weeks <laughs>